own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study God's Word through silent prayer and use of 1 John 1, 1.9 if necessary. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the privilege we have to fellowship together around the teaching of Your Word. We pray that as God the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to the truth that we would be receptive and responsive to see how these things apply in our lives and be willing to put them into application. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think I can talk. My voice is a little dry. That happens in an airplane, sort of dries you out a little bit. It's been a busy couple of weeks. Last week we missed class because the airplane I was scheduled to be on, coming out of Los Angeles last Wednesday morning at the crack of dawn, had a computer glitch, and by the time they got that figured out, it was too late to make the uh, connection in Cleveland, so by the time they could reroute us, to reroute me to a different plane, there was no way to get back to uh, Providence before 8 o'clock. And I was due back at 8.30, but the second connection coming out of Newark also had problems, so I crawled in about midnight. So it was obviously not God's will for us to have Bible class last week. <laughs> But that was a good conference out there. The reason I went out there was because the three of us, George Waddles and and, um, R.A. Williams and I, were planning the curriculum for the pastor's conference that will be the first week of October again in Los Angeles. That's a hard trip out there. That'll be the first week of October. That's some kind of interesting things going on. I spent the last couple of days, uh, or really before I leave that conference, we... uh, We also decided to spend the majority of our time talking about two major issues. One is the charismatic issue and healing, and then the other will be the uh, role of women in the church because a lot of these pastors are fighting within their denomination over whether or not to ordain women as pastors, which, of course, the Bible does not uh, recommend or authorize at all. So that's going to be exciting, and there's a lot of work to do in relation to that, but it will be fun, and they expect somewhere between 700 and 1,000 pastors to show up out there for that. So that will be a busy and hectic week. Also then, this last week, I went down to D.C. Pastor Theme was there for the annual Memorial Day Washington, D.C. conference, which extends from Monday through tonight. And, of course, I came back for Bible class tonight. But we had a good time, and I see a lot of people there that I've known over the years. In fact, ran into one woman who I went to high school with and hadn't seen since. So it's it's an interesting group. But it's always also challenging to see the positive volition that's going on around the country. And the number of people that come in, I had uh, coffee last night with uh, two couples from Bangor, Maine, and that's the tape group they have up there. And the night before, talked with a lady at 
There's about five or six around Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and they have a little tape group there. And they're just these little pockets of people. And there's, besides a tape group, they'll know of maybe a half a dozen other people who just listen to tapes on their own in that particular area. So it's always encouraging to know that there are people out there who are consistently listening to doctrine and who are indeed making doctrine a not just a priority, but doctrine becomes a way of life. That's when you really know that you're going to go somewhere in your spiritual life and is when learning doctrine is a way of life. It controls your schedule, it controls your children's schedule, and that is the most important thing for you is when that becomes the number one priority in your life. The other kind of interesting thing that, that happened that's got some impact for us as a congregation, I think, is that um, Dan Ingram, who we have on our prayer list in the military section, is going to be retiring from the Marine Corps this year after 26 years of service. He talked to me about five years ago about going to seminary. Dan had uh, done his undergraduate work at a Bible college back in the Midwest somewhere, majored in Greek, and then uh, decided to do three or four years in the Marine Corps, which stretched out to 26 years in the Marine Corps. And he began asking me questions four or five years ago. How do you really know if you have the gift of pastor, teacher, and uh, different things like that? And I encouraged him to go to seminary down in the D.C. area because there is a good dispensational seminary down there. And the head of the Greek department is an Annapolis grad and a former Marine Corps officer. So I thought they would have a little something in common. But Dan will be coming here a couple of times this next year. I'm going to start using him. Uh, I think U.S. Air, what's, the, what's their line? U.S. Air has cheap flights down to D.C. and back, Metrojet. So I think we'll start using Dan to uh, cover for me when I'm gone on Sundays because he needs the experience, and he's been on doctrine for years since he was in high school, so he will have a lot to communicate. And he has to do a pastoral internship next summer for two months. And I would really like to be able to host him here and do that. Number one, I had such a crummy internship that I really have a soft spot for these guys that need somebody who knows what they're doing to help them get get their feet on the ground when they're getting started off like this and still in seminary. And I've been uh, mentoring him some. So that's something to look forward to and just kind of think about and toss around. But... Uh, it looks like that's going to be a possibility and something for us to look forward to. And I've already got him scheduled to cover for me one Sunday this summer when I'll be out of town. So we'll get a chance to get involved in a seminarian's life. I won't say young, because I'm younger than he is. <laughs> He's going to love it when he gets the tape. So that's just some exciting things, the way the Lord's using us in different ways around the country. So our influence, as far as the remnant goes, goes far beyond the confines of our local geographical area. Now, having said all that, we need to get into some doctrine, so open your Bibles to James 2. James 2 is one of the most controversial and misunderstood passages in all of the New Testament. Last week when I was in Los Angeles, I was given about two hours' notice to teach Bible class on Tuesday night. So I went in and covered James 2, 14 to 26 in 45 minutes. 
only had one shot. We can't get a lot of inculcation in one shot, so all you do is you hit the high points and make sure they get the points. And then R.A. was gracious enough to tell everybody, if you want the tape, line up now. We'll make copies while you're coming through. And they just all lined up and they made the copies and handed them out while people were going out the back door. What an operation. So uh, that way they get the inculcation by listening to it over and over again. Well, we've hit a couple of important issues in the Scriptures. And when we study the Scriptures, there's three things that are important for us to do in the process of studying the Word. The first step is exegesis. Exegesis is the process. It comes from the Greek word exegeo, which means to draw out or to explain something, what you explain from something. Jesus is said to be the exegeo of the Father. He is the the explanation of the Father. We look to Him to know what the Father is like because He is the revealed member of the Trinity. Now, in exegesis, you have to do lexical studies to find out what the words mean. You have to do grammatical studies to find out uh, what their relationships mean. And you have to also do some textual critical issues to determine exactly what the original text means. And of course, all of this is done in the original language, either Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew, or Aramaic in the Old Testament. The reason you go through the exegesis, and the reason that I do that from the pulpit, in light of the, in opposition to the fact that every homiletics professor in this country says that the one thing you should never ever do is mention the Greek or the Hebrew from the pulpit because that's just going to scare people off. But I think, well, I won't tell you quite what I think about that, but I, I think that what, it, what you do is you establish the fact that uh, almost authenticate or establish your bona fides as to why you say what you say in terms of interpretation and application because it's through exegesis that you can determine an accurate translation of the text. And you can't figure out what it means, which is interpretation, or how it applies under application if you don't have a correct translation. And unfortunately, too many English translations have been influenced by the theological bias or the English ignorance of the translator. And it's amazing because so many of these men do indeed have advanced degrees in, in Greek and Hebrew and other things, but they, uh, they seem to slip up, and we've seen some examples of that in this very passage. So we have to make sure we have a correct translation. Then the next step is interpretation. And just because you have a correct translation does not mean that you're going to get a correct interpretation. That involves an understanding of theology, an understanding of the totality of Scripture, and being able to understand or being able to compare Scripture with Scripture. And it also involves an understanding of dispensations, God's plan for history, and a number of other things to bring all this together under the proper interpretation of the passage. And it is only then that we're able to get into application. Tonight we're going to get into a little more in the realm of application because we've worked through a lot of the exegetical issues and the hermeneutical issues on this passage. 
Now we started off, this section begins in 2.14 and is part of the broader section that is talking about the importance of applying what you hear. The issue is not just coming, learning, uh, assimilating a, a doctrinal notebook, understanding all of the terminology. That is the starting point. It is a necessary starting point. You have to develop the vocabulary. You have to be able to think so that you can then move on to application. You have to begin with hearing. James does not say don't be a hearer. He says begin, become doers of the word and not only or not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, not stopping at the hearing process and just learning for learning's sake. And it's amazing how many people get caught up in the trap and the excitement and the stimulation and the intellectual stimulation of learning all the wonderful things there, there are to learn in the Scriptures. But we start off with that, and that's the overall background. Hearing, hearing the Word leads to application. The corrected translation for poieo here is applying the Word. This is paralleled in this last section, this last paragraph of the section with faith, which is comparable to doctrine as we have seen. That's the nuance of the word. Faith producing works. That is the application of the doctrine. James asked the question, what value is it? What applicational value is it? From Aphelos. My brethren, showing that he's talking to believers, if a man says he has faith, and there we stopped, and we analyzed what does that mean. And there's so much confusion about that. And it's amazing how many people in the Christian community don't think very precisely or define words very precisely. It's just sort of assume that everybody knows what you're talking about. And faith here, we saw, is not related to the faith that gets you into heaven, which we talk about in terms of phase one, salvation or justification by faith alone. It is not faith in Christ. It is not faith in terms of trusting God moment by moment, the faith rest drill, mixing faith with the promises of God. But it is faith in the sense of the passive sense of the noun, what you believe, or doctrine. It's our doctrine. What value is it to have doctrine if it doesn't have any application? Is that faith able to save you? And we saw that saved has several meanings. It can mean just a general sense of deliverance. It can even refer to physical healing. But in, the, in its theological sense, it can refer to either phase one salvation, saved from the penalty of sin, phase two salvation in the spiritual life when we're saved from the power of sin. When you're saved, you still have a sin nature. That sin nature is just as powerful, just as dominant as it was the day you were born. The process of the spiritual life is learning to control that sin nature. The Bible calls it putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Learning to control that sin nature. Learning to resist the temptations from the sin nature. And so that you can grow spiritually, staying in fellowship a maximum amount of the time. That's what we're talking about here. What good is doctrine unless it has application? Is doctrine alone able to deliver you from the power of sin? No, you have to go to the final stage, which is application. That's what James is talking about. He gives an illustration of that in 15 through 17, or 15 and 16, and concludes by saying, Even so, faith, that is doctrine, 
if it has no application, is dead. That doesn't mean it never existed. It means that it is non-productive, being by itself. For something to be dead, it once had to be there. It once had to be uh, living and active. So faith, if it has no application, is dead. That is, it's non-productive. Then we have the words of the objector. This is the opposition, and James uses a debater's technique here to express the words of an opponent. And this is the view of the opponent, that faith and works are not necessarily connected, and it really doesn't matter what you believe. And he uses the example, you believe that God is one, and that causes you to do well or to apply the word, but the demons believe God is one as well, but they don't apply it, they shudder. So he's arguing that there's no connection between what you believe and what you do. And James retorts in verse 20 with an argument to show that there is a necessary connection between doctrine and application, and he uses an illustration from two Old Testament believers, Abraham in verses 21 to 24, and then Rahab the harlot in verse 25. Now, you have to remember that the Bible was written in Koine language, so this is more, we have to bring it up to date. This is Rahab to hoe. We just wanted to make sure everybody was awake and alert. Talking about Abraham, back to verse 21. The question is raised, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now we scratch our heads and we say, Doesn't Paul argue that we're justified by faith alone? Back in Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, because we know that a man is justified by faith and not by works. Isn't this a contradiction? Well, the clue to this we saw last in the last two times is found in verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And here's a prime example of why it's important to get into the original languages and understand the grammar and syntax correctly. Because the English translation is really pathetic. The word translated alone is the Greek word monon, M-O-N-O-N. And this is an adverb, and you should remember from your grade school grammar that an adverb always modifies a verb. The noun is monos, M-O-N-O-S, and that would... Uh, And that's the noun, and if it was an adjectival form, it would have an even different ending. But here we have, in the English, it says, not by faith alone. So alone modifies the word faith, and faith is a noun. Wait a minute. The Greek says that alone should be an adverb modifying a verb. Somebody fell asleep at the switch. And the problem is that it see it seems, at first glance here in the English, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's talking about one kind of justification. A justification that includes not only faith, but also works. But when you realize that the alone is a mistranslation, and that there is an understood but unstated verb in the last clause... To flesh it out, it should read, you see that a man is justified by works and not justified only. That's where it goes. Not justified only or not only justified by faith. Now that indicates that there are two justifications in the Scripture. 
And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, 1 and 2, which we looked at the last time, substantiates that in the way that he refers to Abraham's justification. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. He recognizes the fact that that he did obedience, he was obedient, and there was a justification by works, and it did give him something to boast about. But not before God. In other words, that justification doesn't have any effect in your relationship with God. But it does say something to other people. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not by God, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And then there's a quote from Genesis 15:6, And Abraham believed God, and we saw that in the Hebrew there, that was a cow perfect, and it should be understood in the sense of an English perfect. Abraham had believed God, and it was, at the time of his original faith alone in the gospel, it was imputed to him as righteousness. So even Paul recognizes the possibility of two justifications. One justification which is by faith alone in Christ alone, and this is toward God, and this is what enters us into the Christian life and saves us from eternity in the lake of fire. But there is a second category of justification, and I will translate dikaiao, the Greek for justification here, vindication or validation, because this validates our doctrine before man. And it is part of the spiritual life and part of spiritual growth. And that's the thrust of verse 21. Was not Abraham our father validated by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now we reviewed that the last time in Genesis chapter 22 and the situation there. And I want to go back and review Abraham's life a little bit because the thrust of it is such that it helps illuminate for us the purpose for all of this and why this fits in to our spiritual life today. So turn with me back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. This is toward the end of Abraham's life. In fact, in the next chapter, his wife Sarah will go to be with the Lord, and then after that Isaac is married, and then after that we're told about uh, the death of Abraham. So we're not told about too many more events in Abraham's life. This is sort of a the apex in his life here. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. That's our key word right there, that this is going to be a test for Abraham. And we have already seen in the context of James that the theme of James is testing in the believer's life and that the purpose for testing in the believer's life is to give you the opportunity to take the doctrine that you have learned here in Bible class and to apply it. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a question and answer session here, and most of you were here for that. That was about a month ago. Somebody came up and they said, well, you're the one who teaches us all the time. 
Maybe we ought to have a question-answer session where you ask us the questions and then we give the answers. Well, this is how it really works. I give the lectures. God gives the test. And you get the grade at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that makes sense. That brings it all into perspective. You come here to get the information. It's your decision what you do with that. And then God's going to give you the test and little point, little principle. If you come here and get the information, God is going to test you whether you decide to do something with it or not. Oh, and if you don't come here, then you're out of fellowship. God's going to discipline you, and that will be miserable, and then you'll have to come back. So, (laughs) the issue starts becoming very clear that God wants you to take this very seriously and make it a part of your thinking, so much so that it's so deeply ingrained that, that you're going to instantaneously learn to respond by applying doctrine whenever you get into a situation. Because every circumstance, every situation in life calls for us to make some sort of decision and gives us an opportunity to either apply what we have learned or to try to solve the situation or just live it out on the basis of human viewpoint. And Abraham is the classic illustration of that. And I have about 15 points here, I think, on how this develops in the life of Abraham. 16 points under the category of the tests of Abraham. Point number one, background. Tests are related to God's special revelation to us. Now, you get that when you come to Bible class or you read Scripture. You read Scripture, you'll learn some superficial things. You come to Bible class, we'll dig a little deeper. But God gives us revelation. Now, with Abraham, he had revelation. Specifically, the Abrahamic covenant given in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So God's tests, especially as they're revealed in these chapters of Genesis from 12 down to 24, are almost all related to the provisions in the Abrahamic covenant. And they are, the tests are designed to teach Abraham about who God is, to teach Abraham that God is faithful to his promises and will fulfill them, and we're going to review Abraham's tests. The second point The tests come in two categories. There are tests of adversity and tests of prosperity. So as we've laid this out with our New Testament soul fortress, we have tests of prosperity and tests of adversity. That overhead certainly looks like it's getting... Must have rained on it one day. Certainly looks like it's getting dirty. Okay. Tests come in two varieties. Adversity or prosperity. Point number three. These tests represent the outside pressure of circumstances that are designed to put us in a situation that calls for us to make a decision by either applying the doctrine that we have learned or to operate on the power of the flesh, the sin nature. Now remember, the flesh focuses on one of two polar regions. You're either going to operate from the area of weakness and produce sins, 
or you're going to operate from the area of strength and produce human good and morality. But so often we try to solve the problems, face the adversities or prosperities of life through human viewpoint techniques and human viewpoint skills. And these tests are designed to focus our thinking and to give us that opportunity to make a decision. Volition is the issue in the spiritual life. God is not going to do anything to make you obey Him. But God is going to give you the opportunity, and if you don't, He will definitely discipline you, take you out to the woodshed, and Hebrews says that He will scourge us alive like sons because He loves us. See, love involves discipline and sometimes harsh discipline, and that is something that every parent needs to learn in order to bring their kids, to teach their kids authority orientation which is what they have to have if they are going to be a success in any endeavor in life. And they need to learn that from you because God has specifically put you as a parent in that position to teach your kids authority orientation. And sometimes that involves the unpleasant task of giving them a little corporal discipline. And God definitely designed things for you to spank them at times. I think I heard something on a report on the news down in Virginia. It's hard for me to understand how a southern state could have a law like this, but I guess it's happening everywhere, that uh, some parents were now going to be able to... uh, I didn't catch the whole story. I just caught the end line that now the parents would be able to get uh, it expunged from their jail record if they had been put in jail for spanking their children. I was just appalled. We've really fallen in this country. We're in very sad shape. But tests are designed to give us the opportunity to succeed. That's what they're there for, to succeed. The word for test we saw in the Greek in James 1, 2 through 4 is dokimion, which means evaluation with a positive sense. It's not to find out how bad you are, how much of a failure you are. It's designed to find out how well you are and to give you that chance to show off how much doctrine you've learned in terms of the angelic conflict. So the test gives you that opportunity. Point number four. Abraham's doctrinal provision derived from revelation recorded in the scrolls that had been handed down from Adam through Noah and down to Abraham. Now those scrolls are not extant today. We don't know all that was in them. There was a lot, I think there was a lot of revelation prior to the flood. God still walked on the earth. He walked on the earth with Enoch. I think there was a tremendous amount that they knew that we are ignorant of, that God has not chosen to reveal to us. And I think Abraham knew a lot more than we can glean that he knew from just looking at the accounts in Genesis. I think this is indicated in Hebrews 11.9 where it says, By faith, that is, by means of, of doctrine, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. That relates to the promise of the Abrahamic covenant as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations. Now you can go through Genesis 12 to 24 with a fine-tooth comb, and you won't find any mention of a city which has foundations. But Abraham knew about it according to Hebrews chapter 11, 9, and 10, and he's looking for it. So I think he had a lot of personal revelation from God, and some that was handed down from these scrolls, that is not, was not preserved by God for subsequent generations. We know this because in the English text it's translated, these are the generations of. 
That's a phrase that you find over and again in, in uh, Genesis. It's toledot in the Hebrew. And it, most scholars agree that this marks different records that had been handed down to Abraham and eventually to Moses. And Moses had these scrolls, and under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he did sort of a Reader's Digest version of those scrolls, because God didn't want all that information passed on. He just wanted certain things passed on in the form of Scripture. And we know that, that Moses had all these various sources, and he drew from those under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under divine guidance, and wrote the Scriptures, what God wanted to be preserved throughout all the, the generations. So I think there's a strong case to be built that Abraham knew more than we think he did. I don't think he knew as much as some people want to think he did. I don't think he knew the name of Jesus Christ, but I think he knew that God would provide a Savior and that that Savior would be a unique human being. I don't know how much more he knew than that. He could have known a little more. But his his faith, his salvation was based on believing the promise of God that he would redeem mankind. He would take care of the sin problem. So Abraham's doctrinal provision came from revelation recorded in scrolls handed down from Adam through Noah, preserved on the ark, and then passed down through the patriarchs to Moses when they eventually, the information needed was then included in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Point number five. As doctrine is revealed, faith is tested. As doctrine, doctrine is revealed, faith is tested. You come to Bible class, I teach under the filling of the Holy Spirit, you learn it, and it's transferred into the inner lobe, the cardia of the soul, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, from gnosis to epinosis, and then you have the opportunity to apply it. Epinosis is applicational doctrine, and then you leave here, and you get the opportunity to apply it. As doctrine is revealed, then you go out, to your job, your family, your home, and faith is then tested. In the Old Testament, the basis for the spiritual life was the faith rest drill. They didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the filling of the Holy Spirit. All they had was the promise of God and the exercise of faith in trusting God, mixing faith with the promises of God. That's one reason I think so much of Old Testament revelation is in picture form. The, the visuals of the sacrificial system and very concrete revelation just as when you teach your children and when they're three, four, five, six years of age you teach them in very concrete visual terms that they can understand. You don't use abstract terminology. You don't start talking about the epistemology of Immanuel Kant. That's too abstract. You keep it very concrete and understandable. But if you look at the revelation in the New Testament, it's not given in storybook form. You don't have these visual training aids of the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrifices, all of these things. It's much more abstract. And so in order to understand and assimilate that, we have to have the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So they're able to learn the concrete doctrine that's revealed in the Old Testament and then learn it and believe it and apply it. Excuse me. I'm losing the sound. Time to change the battery. Hold on. 
Okay. That should solve that problem. Has that got it? Okay. Point number five was, as doctrine is revealed, faith is tested. The doctrine in your soul is then tested whether or not you are going to believe it and apply it in the midst of that test. In the Old Testament, the spiritual life was based on the faith rest drill, and in the New Testament, it's based on the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit is ours at the moment of salvation, but we can lose it whenever we sin. When we sin, we instantly lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. We, we grieve and we quench the Holy Spirit, and we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we're out of fellowship with God. That's recovered through 1 John 1, 9. If we admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then we are God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now that's the basis, the filling of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. And we have to go back to the grammar of the command there in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, because the phrase there is in numity. And this is the dative of pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. And the dative is a dative of means or instrument. We are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the problems that's crept up in our terminology is that Sometimes this has been erroneously understood in the sense of, of, a, of a content, that somehow we are filled and the Holy Spirit is the content of the filling. For example, if you take a glass and you fill it with water, water is what you are putting into the glass. That's the content. But in Greek, if you were to express that in Greek, you would use a genitive. Only a genitive expresses the content of the filling. There's no such thing as a dative of content. The dative is only means. Something is used, you say, fill my glass with that pitcher. You're not putting the pitcher in the glass, you're using the pitcher to fill the glass with something. Now, if you go over to Colossians 3.16, you find out what the content is. The content is the Word of Christ. The results that follow Colossians 3.16 are the same results that follow Ephesians 5.18. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So you see here the two power options, the two power sources in the spiritual life. The word of Christ is Bible doctrine, and the one who is the means of putting that into our soul is God the Holy Spirit. And in order for this dynamic to take place, we have to be in fellowship, and we do that through the use of 1 John 1, 9. And then the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the doctrine, helps us to see how it applies, and brings it to our memory in different circumstances so that we can then put it into application. So the New Testament spiritual life is based on the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Point number six. As we learn doctrine, God then takes us through various situations and experiences to give us the opportunity to utilize those doctrines. 
This is what James is talking about in verse 22, where he says, after explaining Abraham's test with Isaac, James says, You see that faith, that is doctrine, was working with his works. And there we have a, a dative of association. The verb is sunergeo, which is the present active indicative showing the process that, that faith, that is doctrine on the one side. John, I think we need to turn the fan down a little bit over me. I'm having trouble controlling my notes. The doctrine, on the one hand, works together with faith, you're trusting, and it is part of the process that's going to culminate in maturity. That's a little too slow, now it's clicking. We'll just have to find a happy medium. You see that faith was working, or excuse me, that's an aorist active indicative, I adjust my glasses there so I look through the sweet spot in the, in the bifocals. An aorist active indicative. Faith was working in the past, and that is in Abraham's situation, a culminative aorist, was working with his works, and from ek plus the genitive of ergon, was working with or from the source of his works, faith was brought to completion or maturity. So it's Starts off here, you have doctrine which is called faith here. Faith, we'll put it up here on the overhead like this. Faith slash doctrine. Faith slash doctrine plus application, of course, under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, is then brought to completion. And here we have the aorist passive indicative of teleao. This ought to be a familiar verb for you, T-E-L-E-I-O-O. The last O is an omega, which is long. And this means to bring something to completion or maturity. So this is the process. Doctrine plus application brings maturity. Now, the verb is an aorist tense referring to the past action. Again, a culminative aorist referring to summarizing all of Abraham's life that doctrine was brought to maturity through his application. It's a passive because I teach the Word, you learn the Word, and you apply the Word. But you don't. You are not the active source of your maturation. God matures you as a result of your application. He's the one who brings you to maturity. Now, let's see how this happened in the life of Abraham. This is going to be point number seven. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and tells him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and to leave his family and to go to a land that he's going to give him. He says in verse 1, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. This is the priority test. And it specifically involves the family. Now, this is a real pressure point for a lot of people, especially if you are 
Jewish, and I've known some Jewish believers who at the point of their salvation and faith alone in Christ alone were completely ostracized from the family. In fact, they were treated as dead and a funeral was held. And never again would their natural mother, their biological mother or father, brothers or sisters or any friends ever talk to them again. Abraham is commanded to put God's plan and purpose for his life as his highest priority. And this is specifically instantiated for Abraham in leaving home and going to where God would direct him. Doctrine means, what this means is that doctrine is supposed to mean more to you than your family, your loved ones, your friends, and mean more to you than the comfort and the security of familiar surroundings. Abraham partially fails the test. He takes Lot along with him, his nephew. Remember, he's supposed to go forth from your relatives. Lot is his nephew. He takes Lot with him. So he, he doesn't quite pass the test in full. Jesus reiterated this same point in Matthew chapter 10 in relationship to believers. He said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That has to do with making God's plan for your life. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Now, that's not talking about salvation. That's talking about pursuing the spiritual life and advancing to the high ground in the spiritual life so that you can have all of the contingent blessings that God has set aside for you for both time and eternity to become real in your experience. This is the same thing with Abraham. God has promised Abraham certain things, and God will give those to Abraham eventually. But for him to fully experience all that God has for him in time, he's going to have to start with some application and obedience. So God starts him off, as he does with most young believers, with the priority test. You have to learn to make the Bible and learning Bible doctrine the priority of your life. You're going to arrange your schedule so that everything fits so you can make it to church on Sunday and on Wednesday. Right now we have class two times a week, so you get the priority test twice a week, at least. Now, point number eight. The next test that Abraham goes through is in the next, or the latter part of this chapter, and that is the test of God's provision. The test of God's logistical provision. There's a famine in the land, and there is outside pressure now. He's going through some adversity. There's not going to be enough food. There's he doesn't think there will be enough resources to keep body and soul together. So rather than staying in the land where God told him to be and following divine viewpoint where God's Word is more real to him than his experiences, God's Word is more real to him than his economic condition, God's Word should be more real to him than the meteorological situation, Instead of trusting God and staying where God told him to be, he goes to Egypt. So he fails the test for provisions. And in the process, in order to solve the problem, he tells a half-truth, tells the Pharaoh that his beautiful wife is his sister. Now, that's a half-truth because she was his half-sister. She's also his wife. At this stage in divine revelation, incest is not a sin, that is, marriage between uh, 
uh, brother and sister is not a sin. That's why uh, Cain and Abel and Seth married their sisters. That does not become a prohibition in Scripture until the Mosaic Law. So he fails the outside pressure of famine. Now remember, adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances and stress is the inside pressure of the soul. Adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Adversity is what circumstances do to us and stress is what we do to ourselves. Adversity can be managed or its effects lessened by various human viewpoint stress management techniques. But the long-term effects will destroy or limit or inhibit cognitive processes. They will create internal conflicts, the disukos of James 1.8, and it's tantamount to the sin nature control of the soul. But stress, the Scripture says, can be completely blocked only through using God's stress busters. And through the application of doctrine, and when these spiritual skills are habitually put into place, then stress is blocked and you can go through any level of external activity, external adversity, without caving into it, without having your life destroyed, and without pushing the panic button and caving into emotional sins and overt sins. Remember, Sins can be one way that we try to handle the outside pressure of adversity. Then in the next chapter, Abraham faces the priority test again. Remember, the first time he partially failed, he took Lot with him. Now he has to, he's going to get that priority test one more time. If you don't pass it the first time, you're going to get to try it all over again. So it's always better to pass it the first time because there are certain tests in life that you just don't want to repeat. Take that by faith. (laughs) Abraham now has to separate from Lot in chapter 13, and he passes that test, and Lot chooses. Notice how generous Abraham is. He says, go wherever you want to. If you want to go to the east, I'll go to the west. If you want to go to the west, I'll go to the east. You just go where you want to go. And Lot chose to live down in Sodom and the cities down by the uh, Dead Sea, which it wasn't dead at that time. Very beautiful area, probably the most beautiful area on earth at the time. And that's what he chose. He had his eyes on material things and not on spiritual priorities. Now, God is calling out a people for his own name. This is why Abraham had to separate from Lot. So there wouldn't be these negative volition influences on what Abraham was doing and calling out this new people of God that would be the nation Israel. So point number nine, priority test number two, Abraham passes it and separates from Lot. Point number ten. Ten is the protection and possessions test. Relates to the provision in the Abrahamic covenant that God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Here... The kings, the five kings in the Keterleomer alliance attack into Canaan. And they attack and they capture Lot and his possessions and, and they ransack the whole area like the Vikings, pillage and plunder, and they head back home. And when Abram heard about this, he gathered his servants, which functioned like a small army, 
Abram was one of the wealthiest men at his time, sort of the Donald Trump of his generation. And so he had a vast number of servants, well over a hundred. He didn't have an army that outnumbered the one he attacked, but he had the wisdom and the power of God behind him. And he is going to show that, that this new people God's calling out is going to be a blessing to those around him. And so he attacks the Keterleomer Confederation, wipes them out, defeats them in battle, and recaptures all the booty and brings it back home and frees the slaves and the prisoners that were captured. So Abraham passes that test. I call it the protection and possessions test because his priority is on that. And then when he comes back, instead of keeping all of these possessions for himself, he distributes them to those who owned them previously and then gives an offering, a free will offering, to Melchizedek, the priest in Jerusalem. So he doesn't become materialistic, he doesn't operate on arrogance, and he doesn't take all of this for himself just because he's the one who went back and jeopardized his own life and the lives of his men in order to deliver everybody. So he passes the uh, details of life test. He masters the details of life and he fulfills the function of being a blessing by association. Then he goes into the first of three what I call production tests. God promised him a descendant, a seed, fertility, production. You'll see why I call it that in a minute. God has promised him a child, and in production test number one, he fails it because he's trying to circumvent the promise of God to give him an heir through his own seed, and he's going to adopt Eliezer. God intervenes, and God reiterates his promise to him in the first part of Genesis chapter 15. Then, in chapter 16, we see production test number two. Sarah says, I'm too old. Why don't you take my handmaiden, my slave, Hagar? She's beautiful. And why don't you have a child with her to solve God's problem of our old age so that we can have a child? Now, this seems like a rather odd, if not offensive, custom to us, but the Bible must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written. And this was the standard operating procedure at their time that if a a woman was infertile, and was barren, could not have a child, then her slave would be taken and her child would be raised up in place of the wife's child. And this was their standard operating procedure in their culture, and so it was very accepted. And so what Abram is doing is he is using the culturally acceptable way of solving the problem. And unfortunately, that's what so many Christians do to solve the problems in their lives. They use the culturally accepted Modus operandi, whatever that is, psychology, counseling, whatever it may be, rather than trusting God exclusively, claiming the sufficiency of Christ on the cross exclusively, and learning the Scriptures and applying them, they try to mix and mingle the Scriptures with other socially and culturally acceptable means of problem solving. But ultimately, it will never work. You cannot mix divine viewpoint with human viewpoint A little leaven leavens the lump, as we've seen in our study in Galatians on Sunday morning. So he goes into, this is point number 12. Production test number 2 is Ishmael, and he fails. Ishmael is the result. Now, Paul picks this whole thing up and uses it as an allegory, as we studied in Galatians chapter 4. Remember, 
the trying to solve problems through the, the bondwoman versus the free woman. Trying to solve problems through the flesh or doing it through the Holy Spirit. And what does he co- conclude with? Well, we're almost there in Galatians. The production of the sin nature versus the production of the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm using this as an example of production test. Are we going to produce in our lives through the power of the flesh and human viewpoint, which may look the same to everybody else. It may look, oh, you're so moral, you're upright, you go to church all the time, you know so much about Scripture, you've memorized 150 promises, your kids all know promises, everything looks right on the outside, but all of that can be done in the power of the flesh, not in the power of the sin nature. And so Abraham is trying to do it in the power of the flesh, and of course we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit only when we utilize 1 John 1.9, and very few Christians do that anymore. Very few are willing to accept the fact that that is important. When you talk to 98% of Christians you run across, they cannot explain to you the difference between morality and spirituality because they think it's the same. Remember... Anything the unbeliever can do in the power of the sin nature is not part of the spiritual life. Anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. And unbelievers can be very, very moral. And they can live very upright lives and they can be very honorable and very respectable. Now in this age, when we're getting further and further away from any kind of establishment truth, that may not always hold. But you will still run across examples of that, especially if they're very religious. That doesn't mean they're saved. So the spiritual life in this age is a unique product of the Holy Spirit, so we have to use the divine viewpoint techniques for handling problems, the ten stress busters. Point 13. There is the test of the promise given again in chapter 17, the reiteration of the promise that God will give him a child, and he trusts God. He goes through the rite of circumcision, which is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, he passes the test. Point 14. There is another situation developing. God is going to judge the cities down, uh, the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns. And so Abraham is again going to have to face the protection test. And after God warns him and tells him what he's going to do, what does Abraham say? He says, Lord, wait a minute, let me ask you a few questions. If there's 50 believers down there, would you preserve the town? And the Lord says, yes. Okay, if there's 50, what about there's 45? What about there's 40? And each time the Lord says, if there's a remnant, because of blessing by association from that remnant, and he works his way down to 10, and of course, lots in town, and we're going to see how Abraham here, because he puts his focus on others here, is going to be a blessing by association, and Lot and his daughters are going to survive as they escape before God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. And incidentally, not that you really need this, but Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot had nothing to do with Noah, the ark, or any of that nonsense in that film that was on TV a few weeks ago that went by the name of Noah. Where you had, it was sort of like a cross between Noah and Waterworld, that horrible movie a few years ago. You had Lot and his family were pirates out there on the water attacking the ark and a lot of other silly nonsense from Hollywood. So, don't, if you didn't see it, don't worry about it and don't waste your time when it comes up for repeats this summer, unless you want to really laugh. 
Okay, point number 13, he passed the promise test. Point number 14, he passed the test protecting Lot, blessing by association. And then, it, and then point number 15, he gets the prosperity test. Now he's going to face his prosperity, and things are going pretty well. He's been a protection and a blessing to those around us. And he goes down to live in the south, in the Negev. And down there, he's not too far from a, a Philistine king named Abimelech. And it's like second verse, same as the first. But this time, there's no external adversity. Back in chapter 12, there was the famine. So he escaped down to uh, Egypt and he lied about his wife. This time, there's no famine. He's in prosperity. But he still operates on the same human viewpoint, solve my problems methodology, and he lies about Sarah. He didn't learn it all the first time. He says she's, not his, she's his sister, and Abimelech is going to bring him into his, his harem, which was standard operating procedure in the ancient world for kings to have large harems with, made up of many unmarried women. And God has to protect her now because she still hasn't had the promised seed. So he has to protect her. And there's Abimelech is warned off. And God delivers him from Abraham from Abimelech's vengeance. And Abimelech takes care of him, gives him sheep and oxen and servants. And so once again, Abraham is blessed. And then we come to chapter 22, which is the test after the birth of Isaac in chapter 21, the test of the offering of Isaac. Now that's just kind of an overview that we have of how testing worked in Abraham's life. Just wasn't one test and there were many more than those mentioned. And that's the way it is in our lives. Every single Sunday morning when you've been out partying to 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning and you have to get up and go concentrate at three at 9 o'clock in the morning in Bible class, that's a test. The test came at 8 o'clock Saturday night when you had a decision to make as to how late you were going to stay out and how alert you were going to be the next morning. So we have these tests. They're little tests sometimes, but they have major results. And the test is, how are you going to organize your schedule so the doctrine is the priority of your life so that when these various tests of faith come, you can apply doctrine. You can learn the problem-solving devices. You can transfer it from gnosis to epinosis in your soul. And then each time decisions come up, you can decide to operate on Bible doctrine and divine viewpoint and solve the problems the way that God has instructed us. And that is the way that growth takes place. Now let's go back to James 2.22. You see, James says, that doctrine was working with application. It's not doctrine without application, it's doctrine with application. And the result of the doctrine of the excuse me the result of the application is that the doctrine is brought to completion it's not completed just if it's gnosis it's brought to completion when there is application so we'll wrap this up with Abraham next Wednesday night in the next couple of verses with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for your word and how it clear it is and helps us to understand how the adversities and prosperities we face in life are part of a 
your divine plan for our lives to bring us to spiritual maturity, to give us the opportunities to take what we have learned here in Bible class and to apply them consistently so that we can advance bit by bit from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity. We pray that as we go through this week, we are confident that God the Holy Spirit, who has taught us these things, helped us to understand these things, will help us to see how to apply these things in our lives. We, see, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.